In October, 16-year-old Swedish climate activist Greta Thunberg held a rally in the streets of downtown Iowa City. So many people gathering here on a weekday with such a short notice. This is real hope to me. At the time, she was still in the running for the Nobel Peace Prize and was fresh off a fiery speech she gave at the UN Climate Summit. Thunberg brought out a crowd of some 3,000 people that day, a turnout comparable to rallies held by leading presidential hopefuls in the city. Right now, the world leaders keep acting like children, and somebody needs to be the adult in the room. Campaign organizers for candidates and climate groups worked the crowd as Thunberg rallied with students and local elected officials, because climate is an issue that is topping the list of voters' concerns. The world is waking up, and we are the change. And change is coming, whether they like it or not. I'm Clay Masters. I'm Kate Payne. From the newsroom of Iowa Public Radio, this is Caucus Land. We see the writing on the wall and we want to prevent that because these cataclysmic events aren't just uncomfortable, they're lethal. The scientific community says the world must zero out greenhouse gas emissions by 2050 to avoid the worst effects of climate change. Democratic candidates are laying out plans to decarbonize society. Natural disasters are pounding communities across the country with extreme heat and cold, historic fires and floods. It came so fast. It it was terrifying. I mean, when I was out there and we were sandbagging, I, I... We probably shouldn't have been out to begin with. There's a new urgency on the campaign trail. Don't sit around and tell me what's not possible. Sit around and look what happens if we don't make change. We are fighting for the survival of the planet Earth, our only planet. Democrats are proposing radical steps, slash fossil fuel use, and overhaul the entire economy. But can the federal government actually move this far, this fast? We're well behind the curve on taking the necessary steps to address climate change. Can these candidates get it done? On this episode of Caucus Land, how the Democrats running for president are addressing climate change. Plus a conversation with Vermont Senator Bernie Sanders. Caucus Land is sponsored by Gravitate Coworking and by Cornell College in Mount Vernon, Iowa, where students get a first-in-the-nation hands-on experience with the political process every election cycle. Explore interdisciplinary learning at cornellcollege.edu. This is Caucus Land from Iowa Public Radio. Since the 2016 election, we've gotten a major report from the United Nations. The analysis shows the world must zero out carbon emissions by 2050 to avoid the worst effects of climate change. We've seen a slate of disasters that scientists say are being made worse by climate change. Massive wildfires in California, record-breaking hurricanes, and historic flooding across the Midwest. According to the Yale Program on Climate Change Communication, a majority of Iowans want stricter policies on taxing corporations for their emissions and requiring utilities to produce renewable energy. Likely Democratic caucus-goers are calling for action. We talked with some of them at different climate events across the state. Are we going to be able to get crops to market? Are we going to be able to deal with the next year's disasters when they come? This is going to affect not only our generation, but even like my sister's generation, my kids' generation. And we're the only ones who are basically serious about it. I'm a big supporter of renewable energy, so I wish that we could slowly start to 
get away from fossil fuels and stuff and turn the jobs that because I do know there's a lot of people that have jobs yeah. in the oil companies and stuff and I don't want them to be laid off because that's awful so I want them to start being trained to work on solar panels they can be technicians on those and keep them maintained I would love to see us get off of oil and gas entirely I know it can't happen tomorrow but I would love to see it. I, I really uh, get annoyed with people who say, well, the Green New Deal doesn't really do anything. It isn't, it isn't a plan. It's, it's a plan for a plan. And it's, it really is a skeleton that needs to be um, fleshed out and made into something. And we can do that together when we get a new administration in the White House that knows and cares and has the public behind it, and I think the public's getting there. It's just really empowering to be around all these people that feel the same, because sometimes they feel discouraged that there's a lot of climate deniers around us, and it's just frustrating. That's Jonathan Honstadt, Grace Holdaway, Brittany Cunningham, Terry Jones, Miriam Kasia, and Megan Boer. Democratic candidates are changing how they're talking about this issue. This is the existential crisis of our time. Well, first of all, I don't even call it climate change. It's a climate crisis. It represents an existential threat to us as a species. It puts every living thing on this planet at risk. One person who's had a major role in shaping the debate is New York Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. To me, a living wage is loving thy neighbor. And to me, a Green New Deal is loving thy neighbor, our children, and our planet. The congresswoman endorsed Senator Bernie Sanders. In November 2019, she appeared with him at multiple rallies in Iowa. She talked about her signature proposal, the Green New Deal. Soybean yields are set to cut 25 percent by 2050 if we don't do anything about this. Maize as well. Sea rises out in coastal cities are set to threaten every major coastal city by 2050 in some way, shape or form. Internet servers are on our coasts. And when those sea levels rise, it's going to create systemic failures if we do nothing. So tell me what costs more, doing something about it or not doing something about it. The majority of the field has signed on to the Green New Deal as a framework, if not fully formed policy. Some exceptions are Senator Michael Bennett of Colorado, Congresswoman Tulsi Gabbard of Hawaii, former Congressman John Delaney of Maryland, and Montana Governor Steve Bullock. They've all been critical of the Green New Deal. It's also been targeted by Republicans. The proposal calls for combating climate change while rolling out guaranteed housing, health care, and employment for every American. So there's a lot going on there. But the key metrics in the Green New Deal are to drastically cut emissions by 2030 and reach net zero emissions by 2050. Every candidate with a climate change plan is proposing to do this. Just let that sink in. They're talking about decarbonizing the entire country. It's a huge undertaking. There is some variation on the specifics of how America gets there. But one of the first things candidates say they'll do is to rejoin the Paris Climate Accord. In November, President Donald Trump formally started the process of getting the U.S. out of the agreement, which was negotiated under the Obama administration. The U.S. is the only country in the world to pull out of the pact. The president has undone Obama-era environmental protections and opened the door to more fossil fuel extraction. We are putting our great coal miners back to work. Here's President Trump at a rally in West Virginia in 2018. And you know, that's indestructible stuff. 
in times of war, in times of conflict, you can blow up those windmills. They fall down real quick. You can blow up those pipelines. They go like this, and you're not going to fix them too fast. You can do a lot of things to those solar panels, but you know what you can't hurt? Coal. You can do whatever you want to coal. But this field wants to do more than roll back Trump administration efforts. One way is by ending federal fossil fuel subsidies, which amount to some $4 billion a year. Noah Kaufman is a researcher at the Center on Global Energy Policy at Columbia University. He says this makes a lot of sense. It's just that they're not big enough to make a big dent in in our emissions, getting rid of those subsidies alone. The candidates say they also want to stop issuing new leases for fossil fuel extraction on public lands, except for Senator Michael Bennett and Governor Steve Bullock. A sizable amount of fossil fuels are produced on America's public lands, including some 40 percent of U.S. coal. So it's not insignificant. Some would take a step further and ban fracking in the export of fossil fuels, including Cory Booker, Tulsi Gabbard, Bernie Sanders, businessman Tom Steyer, and Senator Elizabeth Warren of Massachusetts. All of the candidates also agree on investing in this transition. There's a major emphasis on retraining and lifting up workers in places that are built on fossil fuel extraction. That's a focus of South Bend, Indiana Mayor Pete Buttigieg. What I think is really distinctive about our plan is the emphasis we've placed on recruiting not just those who've been enthusiastic about climate change for a long time, but uh, people like the the agricultural communities uh, to be a, a big part of the solution. And I think We've got to have a climate policy that enlists all Americans to be part of this. Part of this transition means rapidly shifting the country towards renewable energy sources like wind and solar, as well as decarbonizing the transportation system. Some of the most aggressive plans, like from Sanders, Warren, Booker and Harris, are proposing a carbon neutral electricity system by 2030. That's in 10 years. There are real questions about if the U.S. has the technology and transmission infrastructure to make that happen. But some advocates say it's good to have a stretch goal, like Jonathan Halotic of the Center for Rural Affairs. Right now, uh, it's difficult to see that goal and to take it seriously. It's difficult to see that goal and to think, you know, yeah, that's definitely something we can do. Um, But who knows what's going to happen between now and then. So uh, if starting with an ambitious goal is what gets people excited and what kicks off the process, then, then I'm all for it. For some context here, Iowa is considered a national leader in wind energy. Right now, the state is generating about 34 percent of its electricity from wind. So that gives you an idea of how far the country has to go. And of course, the U.S. can't do this on its own. So the candidates are emphasizing major investments in research and development and in international diplomacy to develop new technologies and share them around the world. So lots of general agreement across the field, but there are ways some of the candidates are setting themselves apart. Sanders' plan is by far the most expensive, at $16 trillion. He's also been very outspoken about not only going after fossil fuel companies for civil violations, but for criminal activity, too. How do you hold fossil fuel executives who knew that they were destroying the planet, but kept on doing it. We will hold them accountable. Harris also wants to ramp up legal oversight by empowering federal agencies and individuals to go after polluters. Meanwhile, Booker and Castro are emphasizing environmental justice by focusing on people of color and low-income families that are more vulnerable to pollution and disruption. Castro has also proposed a new immigration category specifically for refugees who are displaced because of climate change. Buttigieg and Klobuchar are putting a focus on the role that rural America and especially farmers can play. 
Warren did not develop a standalone climate plan, but actually wove climate policy into her other plans, which some analysts say is a wise approach because of the way that climate change affects so much of our lives. Let's hear from entrepreneur Andrew Yang now. He stands up for clearly saying that climate change will displace families, neighborhoods, even cities. This is going to be a tough truth, but we are too late. We are 10 years too late. We need to do everything we can to start moving the climate in the right direction, but we also need to start moving our people to higher ground. And the best way to do that is to put economic resources into your hands so you can protect yourself and your families. Yang is also opening the door to some of the more controversial approaches out there, including launching space mirrors or pumping sulfur dioxide into the air to block the sun. These are kind of last-ditch efforts to cut down on the amount of sunlight reaching the Earth's atmosphere and heating it up. This kind of geoengineering is pretty unpopular in the democratic field. Sanders has called it a false promise, and scientists are divided on it. There are some other key disagreements as well on the role of nuclear power and whether to put a price on carbon. David Ullman heads the Environmental Law and Policy Program at the University of Michigan. He says there are major concerns when it comes to nuclear waste. And we have no long-term storage plans. So we're, you know, with the nuclear facilities we have, we're piling up nuclear waste. And it's a, it's a dreadful situation that we haven't ever adequately addressed. So it's kind of hard to see how nuclear really is the solution here. The field is split on nuclear power. Bennett, Delaney, Booker, and Yang want to see more. And while others want to pause development for now, Sanders and Warren want to phase out nuclear entirely. Nuclear accounts for 50 percent of the country's carbon-neutral energy right now. So it would take serious developments to make up for a shift away from it. And then there's the issue of putting a price on carbon. This is a long-standing approach that's been rolled out in other countries. Noah Kaufman with Columbia University says it's considered one of the most efficient ways to curb carbon emissions. Tax them. If, if you have a policy goal to reduce emissions, a carbon price is just a very uh, effective way to reduce emissions a lot for a fairly low cost. The idea is that companies and consumers aren't seeing the true cost of climate change reflected in market values. Taxing fossil fuel producers as close to the source as possible will change behavior. And then the government has more revenue to invest in renewable energy or to send back to lower and middle class families. Most of the candidates are on board with a carbon price, though there are concerns this could hit lower income families hard. So some want to send at least part of the revenue back to communities as a dividend. That includes Booker, Castro, Buttigieg, Yang, Harris, and Delaney. But not all the candidates are ready to fully embrace a carbon price. Warren and Sanders don't include it in their plans. Kaufman says there's a feeling that it's still politically risky. You know, in this day and age, especially on the Democratic side of the aisle, it's kind of a given that they're implementing or or proposing to implement a pretty ambitious and and costly set of policies. Um, Using a carbon tax really should be sort of a no-brainer, and you're just kind of showing um, that you're knowledgeable on the topic by saying um, you want to include it in your plan. So it'd be nice to see them be a little more upfront about that, but um, again, it's probably just a political decision. A carbon tax or cap-and-trade system are by no means a silver bullet. But Ullman says it's hard to come up with a more cost-effective way to rapidly bring down emissions. Everything gets harder without a carbon price. Um, we we s- slow down the phase-out of fossil fuels if we keep propping them up in the market. Uh, if we don't end subsidies for fossil fuels, they're going to be around longer. 
if we don't require that fossil fuel producers absorb the cost of their harmful actions, they're going to be around longer. The experts we talked with pointed out some other holes in these climate plans, too. Jonathan Halotic at the Center for Rural Affairs already sees local resistance to renewable energy development. That community opposition matters, and that community opposition is well-organized. Uh, some of it is, is very valid. Um, there are some real concerns that you encounter when you're building a transmission project. Um, this might be... Um, environmentally sensitive land. It might be religiously sacred land. It might be extraordinarily productive farm ground. Local governments would have a major role to play in permitting where this development takes place. This process can take years under the best circumstances, and some already feel it's moving too fast. In October 2019, officials in Madison County, Iowa, put a moratorium on new wind and solar projects. So in some cases, there just may not be enough time to build enough renewable energy to zero out emissions by 2030, even if a Democratic president started on their first day in office. But Democrats say they're aiming to get it done. In the meantime, advocates are urging them to account for uncertainty and be open to new technology. Some of the technologies candidates say they would rely on are promising, like certain carbon capture techniques and ways of turning carbon into building materials. But the industries for them don't really exist yet or don't exist at scale. Halotic says the clean energy industry will likely change a lot, too. It's hard to know right now. We have no idea what that's going to look like in 2050. We don't know what that'll look like in five years. There's a lot of room for growth, and there's just a little bit of uncertainty there. So we need to be sure that any plan that we put together takes that uncertainty into account. Meanwhile, advocates are urging world leaders to do as much as they can for as long as they can. Scientists are saying the country is already running behind in addressing climate change. And the Democrats running for president know a lot of likely caucus goers are going to be thinking about it on February 3rd. After a quick break, we'll continue our series of talks with presidential candidates, this time with Senator Bernie Sanders of Vermont. Caucus Land is sponsored by Cornell College and by Gravitate Coworking providing flexible workspace for freelancers, remote workers, teams, or anyone sending emails from a couch or a coffee shop, including those in Iowa for the caucuses, with premier co-working spaces in downtown Des Moines and Historic Valley Junction. Learn more at gravitatecoworking.com. Love listening to Caucus Land? Find more stories about the candidates and their positions by visiting our website. We'll keep you up to date on the race to the White House. Go to iowapublicradio.org slash 2020. High quality journalism is more important now than it has ever been. If you've learned something today by listening to this episode, make a contribution now at iowapublicradio.org. It's your support that makes podcasts like Caucusland possible. This is Caucus Land from Iowa Public Radio. I'm Clay Masters. I'm Kate Payne. In early October of 2019, Vermont Senator Bernie Sanders had a heart attack. It took him off the campaign trail for a little while, but he came back to Iowa later that month for a series of town halls. His first one was in Marshalltown. I've been criticized for being old. I plead guilty. I am old. But there are some advantages of being old. 
Senator Sanders barely lost to Hillary Clinton in the 2016 Iowa caucuses, and he's quick to point out that he's been consistent in his beliefs. The ideas that I am talking to you tonight about, they didn't come to me yesterday. They didn't come because I had a pollster saying, hey, this is polling pretty well, Bernie. You might want to take that one up. These are ideas that I have fought for my entire life. Many of Sanders' competitors in the lead-up to 2020 share variations of many of his policy positions, like on health care or college tuition. Earlier in the day, before his town hall in Marshalltown, we sat down with Senator Sanders in a conference room office in Des Moines. So first of all, Senator, curious how you're feeling. I'm feeling great. Thank you very much. And I just want to take this opportunity to thank people in Iowa and all over this country who prayed uh, for my recovery and who sent their well wishes. Much appreciated. And on that note, Senator, your health is not an issue for some, a a deep concern for others. Um, Can voters trust that if you feel you're not physically up to this job, that you would leave the race? Absolutely. But look, I am. Um, I am getting stronger every day. And I think the answer is watch me campaign. Watch how I do in debates. Watch my day-to-day activities. And you'll find that the procedure that I had, as I'm sure you know, is a fairly common procedure. I didn't, I got to admit that I learned a little bit about cardiology in the last few weeks. Turns out it happens, I believe, close to a million times a year in the United States. Uh, And I'm angry at myself a little bit that I didn't pay more attention to the symptoms. You know, I was working really, really hard, but I got more tired than I usually did. I was God-given a lot of endurance, and I've had that my whole life. Uh, so my message to listeners out there, pay attention to some of those symptoms. Get to a doctor if you're getting fatigued. But I'm feeling great, and I think we have every reason to expect the full recovery. I want to ask about uh, climate change here. Scientists yes. and leaders at the United Nations say that the world will have to fundamentally transform our economies to reach net zero greenhouse gas emissions by 2050. Yes. Uh, how do you uh, achieve that goal uh, with the federal government? I mean, do they need to be saying companies can't sell certain kinds of cars or homeowners shouldn't be well, looking at certain... Thank you for asking that question, and, and you're exactly right. And I think anyone who objectively looks at our climate change proposal... Uh, will see it as the most comprehensive proposal in terms of trying to do what the scientists, as you indicate, tell us we have to do. So let us be clear what is at stake. Some people say, hey, Bernie, your proposal is expensive. It is expensive. Compared to what? We are fighting for the future of this planet. We are fighting to make sure that your kids and your grandchildren and future generations have a nation and a planet that is healthy and is habitable. So to answer your question, yeah, we have to say to the fossil fuel industry, sorry, your short-term profits are not more important than the future of this planet. And we are going to move away as aggressively and as quickly as we can from fossil fuel to energy efficiency and sustainable energy. And in that regard, let me congratulate the people of Iowa. You are some of the leaders in this country in terms of wind. We can and must do more but Iowa is helping to pave the way. We're Right now, I think you're getting 35% of your electricity from wind. That's no small thing. We can do better. And as president of the United States, we're going to provide the funding, not just to Iowa, but to every state in this country to move forward uh, aggressively away from fossil fuel. And the fossil fuel industry has known for decades that they are 
causing damage by emitting these greenhouse gases. Um, elsewhere, we're seeing uh, settlements with the opioid industry who also knew they were implicated and right. in, in the impacts that That's they were right. profiting from. Would your Justice Department seek a similar settlement? Well, how many hours do we have to answer that excellent question? All right, the answer is absolutely. Look, you've touched on one of the themes of my campaign. And I want you to just take a deep breath and think about it. Let me go with the easier one, which is the pharmaceutical industry. Pharmaceutical industry is not just incredibly greedy. They made $69 billion in profits last year, while one in five Americans cannot afford the medicine they need. They are engaging, as we speak, in collusion and in price fixing. A couple of months ago, I went to Canada with some folks from the Midwest. We bought insulin for one-tenth the price that it is charged in the United States, as you indicated Right now, there is a major lawsuit by many states around this country. You know what that lawsuit is about? It's saying to the opioid manufacturers, you knew. You knew that the product you were selling all over this country was addictive. You knew that people were getting addicted. You continued to deny that reality. You killed people while you were making huge profits. And then you go to the, as you indicate, the fossil fuel industry. What do we say? to executives at ExxonMobil and elsewhere who knew their scientists were telling them that climate change was real, their product was, in fact, helping to destroy this planet. What my administration is about and will be about is to tell the corporate elite that not only do they have to end the greed, they have to end the corruption. If somebody knows that the product that they are selling is killing people, that is illegal. My Department of Justice will throw the book at them, and they will end up in jail. I'm tired of a criminal justice system that throws kids in jail for selling marijuana but turns its back on crooks who are killing people all over this country and lying about what they're doing. Senator Sanders, let's say you get the Democratic presidential nomination. You're running against Donald Trump in a state like Iowa, where many people voted for Barack Obama in the state and then four years later, voted for Donald Trump. How, how do you make a case to them? How do you make Good. Trump supporters think that you're the person great, to Great take question. Uh, if my memory is correct, I think more recent polls have us beating Trump here in Iowa. And, and actually, the last time I was back here, we quite intentionally went to those communities that voted for Trump but had voted for Obama. And I think here's the case that you make. The case that you make is that when Trump ran for president, in 2016, he told the people of Iowa that he was going to stand with the working class of this country. And he lied. That's just the simple truth. He lied. You remember he said that he was going to provide health care to everybody. Remember that? Well, he worked as hard as he could to try to throw 32 million people off of the health care that he, they have. He said that his tax proposal would not benefit the rich, but would benefit working families Truth is, 83% of those benefits of his tax proposal over a 10-year period went to the top 1%. He said, and I remember this like it was yesterday, he said, I'm a different type of Republican. I'm not going to cut Medicare. I'm not going to cut Medicaid. I'm not going to cut Social Security. Take a look at his last two budgets. That is exactly what he does. Massive cuts to Medicaid, Medicare, and cuts to Social Security as well. So in other words, what I will do as the Democratic nominee is expose Trump for the liar that he is, and in fact, instead of working to improve life for working families, 
In many instances, he's doing exactly the opposite. He's working for the rich and the powerful against the needs of working families. And so, Senator, over your career, one of the hallmarks is the consistency of your message. Um, And I, I think back to the press conference that you held launching your 2016 campaign, um, sort of, you know, a, a few reporters assembled on, on the lawn in D.C. And, and how things have changed, how American politics has changed. Over those decades, what was driving you to, to hold on to that message? Well, I'll tell you. Um, I think the main thing is that I come from a working class family. Uh, I grew up and spent my entire childhood in a rent-controlled apartment in Brooklyn, New York, three-and-a-half-room apartment. And I remember the stress in our families, the arguments between my father and my mother about, can we buy this? Can we do this? Money, 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 money. And the lack of money caused problems for my family. And that experience as a kid growing up in a family without any money is something that I have never forgotten and is at the core of what I believe and what I'm trying to do in this country right now. Half of our people in the wealthiest country in the history of the world, half of our people today are living paycheck to paycheck. And if there's an emergency in the family, if the car breaks down, they don't even know how they're going to be able to pay to fix that car. They don't know whether they can afford to go to the doctor. you got people spending half of their income for housing right now. So growing up in that family, knowing what it is like not to have any money, living paycheck to paycheck. That's something that is what has motivated my political views, something I've not forgotten about. I come from the working class of this country, and I will fight for the working class of this country. Okay. Okay? Thank you, Senator. Now an update on the crowded field of people who want to be president. Two more candidates have dropped out of the race. Former Texas Congressman Beto O'Rourke suspended his campaign just before the high-profile Liberty and Justice Dinner in Des Moines, put on by the Iowa Democrats. And on the Republican side, former South Carolina Governor Mark Sanford also dropped out. We're ending the show with Only in Iowa, stories from the campaign trail that could only happen in Iowa. There's a long-storied history of Iowans hosting house parties for presidential hopefuls, Republicans and Democrats. In April 2019, Des Moines resident Liz Edelman hosted California Senator Kamala Harris in her home. That's Edelman standing at the base of her stairwell, speaking to people packed in her living room. At the time, Harris was on Edelman's short list of people she was considering caucusing for. To have you in my living room is quite an honor. The visit from Harris wasn't the first time this mother of three and public relations professional hosted a politician. We've done this before, so I kind of knew the drill of what to expect in terms of food and, you know, put everything in cabinets to hide. (laughs) I guess it doesn't normally look this clean. Edelman is originally from outside Washington, D.C., and never experienced anything like this until moving to Iowa 10 years ago. So it's pretty surreal that you can have a candidate running for president in your living room. The House Party gives campaigns like Harris's an intimate and inexpensive venue to connect with caucus goers. I am running for president of the United States, and I am a candidate, and I would love to have everyone's support, so I'm going to get that out of the way. Please, I'd love to have your support. Um, 
Six months after hosting Harris in her home, Edelman made the decision she's going to caucus for Harris. She says that living room speech definitely helped persuade her. See, not all the campaign work in Iowa is done by flashy ads or at large-scale rallies. Sometimes it happens one person at a time, in kitchens and living rooms. We want to hear your Only in Iowa stories, too. Give us a call, 888-893-2036. Leave us a voicemail and tell us how to get a hold of you. Or email us, caucusland at iowapublicradio.org. Tweet about it with the hashtag only in Iowa. Caucus Land is produced by me, Clay Masters, Kate Payne, and John Pemble. Our music was composed by Garrett Schmidt and performed by Garrett and Aaron James. Our news director is Michael Leland. Our executive producer is Katherine Perkins. We also get help from our digital team, Lindsay Moon and Matt Searin. Subscribe to Caucus Land wherever you get your podcasts. Don't forget to rate and share the show. Caucus Land is a production of Iowa Public Radio.